0: So uh, we'll try to get some energy going. Uh, Hope you've enjoyed winter so far. Did you enjoy the little blast of spring this last week? Are you glad it's not ice out there instead of of, uh, just rain? I am. Anyway, uh, before we get into the message, I just want to spend, I don't know, 45 seconds. Uh, Last week, we had Thomas Anderson here from uh, Harbor Hill Church. He's going to be planting a church there this uh, September, and he gave a great message on the movie Get Out. Uh, One of the things that happened is we show clips from movies and uh, a couple clips in the stuff we showed last week had some expletives that should have been deleted. They were not. So if your ears were offended, they were uh, justifiably so. Uh, I had every chance during the week before that message to review those videos and I just got tied up with other stuff and didn't do it. And so uh, I uh, sincerely apologize to you guys for that, for that failure on our part. We'll do everything we can to prevent that from happening. We want this to be a safe place for you and your munchkins and everybody else that shows up. So uh, please forgive us for that mistake. We'll do everything we can to prevent it from happening. But I assure you that there will be occasions in the future where I'll be up here apologizing for something. It's just the nature of human beings. Uh, And if you you expect that you are in a church uh, with perfect people, uh, I'd like to use this opportunity to disabuse you of that notion. And if you're not perfect either, uh, you're going to fit right in. So let me pray for our time and we'll get into Spider-Man Homecoming. Lord, thank you for your word thanks for uh, the way we can connect the dots with stuff in our culture. Uh, Thank you that uh, you've given us um, your heart and your son and your love, and you care for us so much more than we even know. Uh, We pray that we might meet you here this morning, that we might hear from you this morning, that we might be changed by you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here at the very beginning, you uh, have now been introduced to the two main protagonists of the movie Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, We saw the vulture, uh, played by Michael Keaton, his name is Adrian Toomes in the first clip. Uh, He's a guy whose crew is collecting alien material, you know, it's all around as we know that, Uh, alien material and fashioning it into weapons for sale. That's That's their business model. And then we just saw 15-year-old Peter Parker, uh, who was uh, bitten by a radioactive spider. And instead of getting radioactive nuclear Lyme disease and killing us, which is what would happen to you and me, he, he turns into Spider-Man. It's really believable, okay? Anyway, here's the deal. He is not yet a full Avenger. He's just kind of a, a journeyman. Uh, he's got uh, uh, Tony Stark, who's uh, Iron Man, who is his kind of mentor. uh, But he's not full-up Avenger like Captain America or the Hulk and all those guys. Anyway, Peter's kind of in training. And uh, officially, his cover is that he is to be, uh, uh, he's an intern with Stark Industries. And he's supposed to just be, at this point in his career, just the the good little neighborhood Superman or uh, Spider-Man, kind of helping people out here and there, staying out of trouble, staying out of harm's way taking baby steps, learning about his suit and how it works and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it, it is frankly this process of growing and maturing and learning that we get our spiritual connection with God and this morning. Uh, in this movie, we, we, I think we see three distinct ways that God grows up as people, as Christians, that we see this kind of evidenced in the terms of this Tony Stark-Spider-Man relationship. And uh, we all kind of want it for Christians, right? We, we want to learn. We, we don't want to be the stupid, dumb cat, right, that just keeps making the same mistakes over and over. Uh, but I get a lot of questions. If you're a pastor, you get these. What's God's will for my life? What's God want me to be when I grow up? What's he got in store for me? And a lot of those questions will revolve around things like, well, who should I date? Or, who should I marry, uh, what should I study in school, what job should I take, should I leave the job I have now and take another job, should I move to Seattle, uh, if you like rain here, you're going to love it there, uh, that kind of stuff. Should, what, should I buy a house all that kind of stuff? These are important questions, but they're not the most important questions if you're a Christian. Maybe you weren't aware that God has a very specific plan for us as Christians. Kind of what He has an overarching will for our lives, what He intends to see happen in us and to us over the course of our lives. And if I ask you to tell me what that is, my suspicion is you might have, some of you might have a difficult time telling me what that is. And because so many people don't know what that is, let's just kind of dig into it for a second, Let's turn to the passage. It begins with a verse most of us are familiar with. We actually just kind of sang a song that had the phrase in it, but it's Romans 8.29, one of my favorite books. Actually, the book I'm reading at any point in time in Scripture is my favorite book, but Romans, I'm digging into it now. But here's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Don't Don't we just love that verse? Isn't that just the coolest verse ever? You know, when uh, we go through tough times, that no matter what's going on, no matter how bad things get, uh, we kind of have this confidence, this faith that God can cause somehow good to come out of it, and that's awesome. But but you'll note something, that this verse is for people with two specific characteristics. They've got to have a little more commitment than the person on the slide. (laughs) They've got to be sold out in love with God. The God of love, God above everything else, because He is a jealous God who will not take second place to anything or anybody else. Secondly, you have to be a person called according to His purpose. So, okay, as Christians, we are not to be working counter to God's purpose for us. So, wouldn't it be awesome to know? what His purpose is, if we're not going to work counter to it. I think that's why questions from pastor, pastors get her often revolve around this kind of will, what God's will. We're, we're trying to figure it out. Well, I think sometimes we just make it harder than it is, because the next verse tells us very specifically what God's purpose is for every Christian who's ever lived. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's master plan for your life as a Christian is simple, to maneuver everything in your life to make you become more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Yeah, God loves us. He's proved it by sending Jesus to die for our sin. He's proved it by winning us over to himself through his kindness to be, have faith in Christ. And he's proved it by giving us his own Holy Spirit to live in us and dwell us. But becoming like Christ doesn't mean that we end up little robots, because we also know from Scripture that God has fashioned each of us in our own unique way with specific skills and abilities and talents and personalities. It's just that as Christians, what God begins to do is to begin to fashion us as Christians with those skills and those abilities and those talents and those personalities into ways character of Jesus, that Jesus has so that he would use those skills, abilities, and talents in ways that Jesus would on this planet. It's going to bring God glory, but it's also going to give us joy and give us peace and give us fulfillment. All the things, frankly, that we learned that we really want in our how do you get what you really want series we did uh, just a few weeks ago, right? Deep down, that's what we really want. So, the question is, okay, how, what's the process look like? that God uses for this fashioning us into more and more and more looking like the image of Christ. Three things I see in Scripture and three things I see in this movie Spider-Man. The first and I'll just call this. Bummer, that irks. Bummer, that irks. Here's a clip from the movie to get us into that. Okay, if you are observant as the girl was in the earlier clip, uh, you're gonna see that our 15-year-old superhero has got some things going on that just kind of generally irritate people like smashing a guy's face into a car that he's actually trying to get into his own car. Uh, Peter Parker is kind of just full of himself, isn't he? Uh, He decides he can't fulfill his commitments to his high school classmates, his friends. He quits the marching band, quits the robotics club, His academic decathlon team, which is apparently uh, uh, headed for the national championships in Washington, D.C., and of which he is the primary super guy on the strongest member of the team, now he quits. He quits. Why? Well, because Tony Tony Stark might just call him for a mission. Well, Tony Stark knows Peter. He knows Peter's not ready for some mission, so he ain't gonna be calling anytime soon. You know that, and I know that, but Peter Parker does not know that. He is blinded to his exaggerated opinion of himself. Soon after, uh, he sees some guys robbing a bank's ATM. So he decides someone to slip down there and and stop them. What he didn't know is that those guys had some of those special fashioned alien material weapons, and uh, he doesn't stop them. They get away clean the deli across the street ends up getting blown up, which is uh, where one of his friends uh, lives and nearly kills the owner. So, so as you look at kind of Peter Parker's kind of life right now, I, w- I wouldn't say that he's willfully sinning necessarily. He's just not aware <laughs> that his sense of self-importance. He's not aware that his dissing his friends and commitments. He's not aware that being impetuous is kind of a problem yet. He's kind of oblivious, kind of blind to the impact he's having on people around him. But those are the kinds of things in us. God will insinuate himself and work out of a Christian. How about we look at Scripture and see if there's anybody that looks like that in Scripture? How about we tune into a 17-year-old in Scripture, see if there's any parallels? The 17-year-old's name is Joseph. So one of the sons of Jacob. There was Abraham, then Jacob, and then uh, now his kids. They're living in Canaan where God sent Abraham to settle down. See if you can spot the irksome or irritating or annoying characteristics in this kid. Genesis 37. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, was Joseph accurately reporting what was going on? Probably. More than likely, because the more we get to know his brothers, the more we know they're kind of rascals. My guess is that they were probably doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. We're not told what it was, but the other option is that Joseph actually invented the story, kind of lied about his brothers. If so, it's the only recorded lie we have of Joseph being told, uh, telling a lie in the, in the scripture. So, I, I'm pretty much convinced he was telling the truth. But look, look, nobody likes a snitch, do they? Nobody likes a tattletale. Everybody hates that. Just straight back to dad to rat them out. No sense that he actually talked to them, tried to convince them that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Uh, Listen, it got to the point where they could not even speak to their brother without their disgust and contempt and hatred being obvious. Now, Now, knowing that, knowing that you're the youngest and your 11 older brothers are all bigger, badder than you are, You would think maybe he developed some common sense, right? No, he doesn't have that. Gets better. Verse five. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Oh, his dream, by the way. I dream that you guys, all of you guys, older than me, first in line for the inheritance, you are going to be bowing down to me one day. So he not only irks them with his dream, but he irks them with his words, because he apparently went around yapping about this to everybody, apparently. He's got no filter. Gets better, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. Shall I and your mother, he recognized, mom and dad are the sun and the moon, And your brothers, 11 brothers, 11 stars, they connect the dots pretty easily. We're going to be bowing down to you one day. So at this point, Joseph has pretty much irked off everybody in his family. It's like his goal is this next slide, right? The more people hate me, the less people I have to please. (laughs) Now, the dreams he actually dreamed were true. Absolutely true. And they did happen exactly as Joseph dreamed them. What he didn't see coming was what God was going to do to make Joseph the kind of person who was worthy of being bowed down to. So his brothers hate him so much that they finally sold him into slavery. They sprinkled some blood on his coat, told Dad that the critter killed him. Joseph hauled off to Egypt, is falsely accused of of attempted rape, sent to prison where he languishes for years. And he came out of that experience different a different person. A humbled person, a changed person, had to go through some really hard things as God worked to conform him more into the image of Christ. How does this work in today's world? Lots of ways. Let me just share from you a personal experience from my life. Now, I've told many of you that God called me into ministry at age 27, but that I think he did not make me a senior pastor of anything. Uh, for a long time because he wanted to knock a bunch of crap out of my life that needed to to be be, uh, sandpapered off or maybe sandblasted off. So I wouldn't destroy a church or destroy people or whatever. But here's one thing he did. Jackie and I moved to Nova years and years ago. We fell in with a super duper group of friends at a little church we had in going to at the time in Herndon. There were probably, what, seven, eight couples. Uh, we became like the super closest friends, the kind of friends that would just kind of pop in on each other's house un- un- unannounced. I mean, you just, 10 o'clock at night, you can expect a, the, your door to open and there's your buddies. And they just decide, oh, we'll come to your house tonight. And when we started having kids, we just packed the kids up in their play pens and took them over to the houses. They'd put down to sleep. We'd talk, play games, whatever, till two or three in the morning. It was, it, it was kind of about the closest I've experienced to family uh, out here that, 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 that I've ever had, right? Well, I had my goofy sense of humor way back then and I loved to make uh, people laugh. I had, was quick with a quip and I was pretty good at uh, making people laugh. But uh, one evening, the doorbell rings and one of the couples comes in. No big deal. It happens all the time. But they wanted to talk. They wanted to talk. And what they wanted to talk about, they said, you're, you're, Dwayne, you're, your humor, it's irksome. It's irritating. It's annoying. It's hurtful. It's sarcastic. And I'm sitting there going, I can't believe this because I'm just, I'm Mr. Funny Man. How could this possibly be? So I listened. But you know, what they're basically saying is, Dwayne, you're just a little ray of pitch black. That's kind of what you are. So I didn't know what to do. I was just crushed. But I thought, well, this can't be true. So I went to all the other friends. And I said, what, what, do, you, what do you guys think? Expected them to say, oh, these guys are nuts. And they all said, yeah, I know what they said. It's I mean, I love you anyway, but that's true. That's true. And so for about six months, I didn't really talk much. If, and you may not be able to believe that, but that's true. Uh, I could not trust that what I said when I opened my mouth would be heard the way that I thought it was going to be heard and the way I actually wanted it to be heard. So after about six months, I began to kind of climb out of my shell. I went back to all my friends and I said, okay, here's what we got to do anytime I say something that's a little bit askew, you have to call me on that. And you cannot call me on it a week later. I need to know immediately whether it's sarcastic or hurtful or or inappropriate or whatever. And uh, so they started doing that. Uh, And and over time, I began to learn the difference between hurtful humor and sarcastic humor and funny humor. It got got a little clearer to me but I got to tell you, it was a blind spot that I did not see at the time. It required God to do something to make things happen. And uh, you sitting here should be thankful because I hope that most of the time we have a conversation, we don't end that with you off off looking for band-aids. See? So you can thank God for that thing that happened 30 years ago to me, right? Look, we are all involved in things. We all have irritating things, whatever, that God's gonna deal with. You study who Christ was, you study how he was with people and what was important to him and then you look at you. God's gonna work on conforming us to the character of his son. So God's gonna work out of us things that not, might, might not be sin in the, in the traditional sense of willful disobedience, but just things that are a little askew, things that kind of irk people, things that kind of annoy people, things that, in us that maybe get in the way of our having credibility when we wanna share the, our faith with somebody. If you are clueless as to what those things are in your life, just ask people who know you, family members, friends, co-workers, bosses. Beg them to care about you enough to tell you because you're probably blind to it, like I was. You got no idea. So we need to expect that God's going to change us in those areas. If if you don't have stories of such things happening, you might want to ask this question. Could it be? That I really am the only person other than Christ to walk this planet that has already conformed to Christ's image. And if you don't know that that's a rhetorical question, then you definitely need to talk to your friends, <laughs> because when God starts working this stuff out, the best thing to do is to let Him, to let him. see for what it is. It's God conforming us to the image of His Son. It's actually good for us, it really is. You'll be happy, you'll be happier. You'll be a better person on the other side of the changes and the people you have to interact with are going to be happier too. So, first thing, God will begin to work out things that irk people, (laughs) okay? Second thing, second way God works to conform people into the image of Jesus is what I call, ouch, that hurts. Here's a clip. We'll connect the dots. Okay, up to this point in the movie, I would call Peter Parker just kind of irritating and irksome. Uh, you could just write it off as kind of youthful exuberance. But after the scene we just saw, Peter goes full on disobedient. He's told very clearly by Iron Iron, Man, who who, saves him from that disaster, that these weapons and the vulture are not his business. He is, again, to stay close to the ground. He is, again, to just be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And if he happens to come across any of those weapons anymore, don't do anything with it. Just call Stark headquarters. Pretty clear, right? But what does he do? He ignores every one of those specific commands. He is determined to prove Iron Man wrong, that he's ready for more. Like like I'm sure, right? That mom and dad have told this kid, we're going to get you ice cream, just do not stick it up your nose. Um, We we told you 20 times, don't do it anymore. Not up your nose, stop it. But here she goes again. So I'm sure now they have photographic evidence. Do you think this will not show up on the wedding? Yes, it will. Anyways, similarly, Peter, as he's walking back from this conversation with Iron Man, he finds the two weapons that we saw fall out of the van. Does he call Stark? No. And the misadventures just escalate, right? He uh, gives one of them to Ned, his friend, and they're trying to figure out what these weapons do, right? The guy ends up with one of them in his coat pocket when they go to the decathlon championship in Washington, D.C. The guy's getting ready to go through the uh, metal detector. Then uh, Spider-Man, who's basically caged up someplace, another story, uh, he's, he can't rescue the guy, because he, but he finds out that this thing, once you go through a metal detector, it will activate the, the bomb thing, so, all the way up at the top of the Washington Monument, the thing goes off. Anyway, almost everybody in the team gets killed. Spider-Man saves the day, but gosh, it's a disaster, right? And not only that, the Washington Monument is, dang- is endangered. It's damaged, which means more scaffolding. It's going to be another decade before people can go as tourists up there. I mean, it's, just a, it's, a, it's horrible. Uh, Peter then tries to stop another weapons deal that takes place on the Staten Island Ferry. What does he do? Call in the reinforcements? Nah, I'm gonna do this all by myself. Again, going it alone, the bad guys get away, everyone on the ferry almost dies, and they're saved only by the intervention of Iron Man. Well, pretty clear. Peter's gone rogue, and his discipline is swift and sure, as we see in this clip. Hammer falls. Internship over. Dream of being an Avenger over. At this point, it's very tough love. But isn't this just like God when we ignore his specific commands? When when we do exactly what he knows is not best for us? For those of us who are Christians, who are God's children, God is going to treat us like a loving father would. And that includes discipline for our own good. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews explains this to us as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters. My my son, my daughters, do do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son, every daughter he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For, For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which we as Christians all have participated in, then you are illegitimate children. You're not really children of all. You're not sons. You're not daughters. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not be much more subject to the father of lights and spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God... He disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in His holiness. See, this discipline that God administers is designed not to make Him happy. It's for our own good, so that we can share in His holiness, i.e., to conform us to the image of His Son. Now, in terms of a biblical example of this, someone who was a follower of God but needed some of God's discipline, we need to look no further than, than King David, who was declared by God himself to be a man after God's own heart. That does not mean that David was perfect, not by any stretch. And when he messed up, though, and God brought discipline, David would humble himself, confess, repent, take what the Lord dished out in terms of uh, discipline for his own good, knowing it was for his own good, because what David wanted more than anything else was for his relationship with God to be right and tight. Now, David, before the uh, events we're going to talk about today, has already been through a ton of fires with God. God. He's seen God do amazing things, the whole thing with Goliath. He has seen God, without even doing anything really, uh, maneuver all the events to bring David into being the king of Israel. He has seen God give him victory after victory after victory over his enemies. All of this has happened before, from the roof of his palace, he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house down below. He's seen all that with God before he tells his servants to go get her, and they do so only over their, their objections. After all, she was married to Uriah, one of David's most loyal fighters. Nope, he's undeterred. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. Then the elaborate attempt at a cover-up that culminates in the murder of her husband. David thinks he's gotten away with it. He marries Bathsheba, trusting, I guess, that people in Israel can't count to nine and won't be mystified when a baby shoots out at the end. But God knows, and God sends Nathan, God's prophet, to let David know that God knows, and that there are going to be some pretty serious consequences. What David did was not irritating. It was not irksome. It was flat-out sin, adultery, lust, murder, lying, and David hears this, and he's crushed. he says, I, 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 "I've sinned before the Lord, I've sinned against the God that I love." And he repents. You can read all about his uh, agony, is he writes about this in the Psalms, this whole affair. He knows he deserved death. But God forgives him, spares his life, but man, the consequences are steep. Second Samuel, Nathan proclaims them to the king. Now there, here's, here's the consequences. From now on. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he will lie with your wives in the light of the sun and broad daylight, public view for everyone to see. For you did what you did secretly. But I'm gonna do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. Everyone in Israel is going to see it, and they're all going to know. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, the child that's born, because you have scorned me, will die. You know, you knew what was right, David. You did the wrong thing, intentionally. It wasn't an accident. You weren't blind. It wasn't a blind spot to you. You violated pretty much every command. You rejected my words. You scorned me. You treated me as if I was nothing despite all of our history together. And you have destroyed people. And you're in leadership, which means you have jeopardized the nation. So in forgiving you and keeping you as king, here's what's going to happen. Every person in Israel is going to witness the consequences as they fall on you. It's going to be very, very public. And every single element that Nathan spoke to King David happened just as God proclaimed it reminders, not only to David and his family, but the entire nation. The sin brings death and serious consequences, but that God loves you enough to deal with it straight up. He's not going to let you slide. He's not going to let you get away with it because his intention is to what? Move you closer and closer and closer to the image of his own son for your own good. You read the account of David from that point on. You never see David accusing God as the consequences pile up, and they're horrendous. They just keep him humber, humble and close to God. Now, here's my little story I didn't sleep with someone's wife or kill someone's husband. Okay, I'll just confess that right now. I'm innocent of those charges. But did I know God's decree in the Bible that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? Did I know from the Proverbs that they're full of life lessons on how to handle money? And that the love of money will always lead us to want more and more and more and more and more and and never be satisfied. Yeah, but I was too much like David about 30 years ago. I wonder what God would do. We had a neighbor who was uh, trying to develop a software package to digitize medical records. He already had a working prototype, and he was, had a good relationship with a bunch of military clients. Things seemed to really, really be going someplace. This guy was a Christian. His wife and my wife and our, our families uh, had Bible studies together. Anyway, he was at one point looking for a little more capital to kind of take this to the next level. Jackie and I talked about it, and we kind of agreed that we would cash out some certificates of deposit we had with our bank, uh, and we invested with this guy. Um, by the way, I don't know if you know certificates of deposit. Certificates of deposit are like taking your money and putting it in a mattress, and then lighting the mattress on fire. That's the the benefit of CDs. We weren't losing a whole lot of investment money. But still, we were going nowhere with that. But this whole project sounded really good to us. But I got to tell you, what I was seeing was dollar signs. How much we could make if this thing really took off. So sure enough, time went by, and the guy needed a little more capital. And this time, Jackie was totally opposed to it. But I also knew in the Bible, did I not, that God gives us men wives for our own good as helpmates, and we'd be wise to listen to them. But I ignored her, and I wore her down until she finally said, okay, 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 and she let me do it several more times. So let me ask you this. As a Christian, with God as our Heavenly Father, willing to discipline us because He loves us, <laughs> what chance in the world did this have of ever working out? Hmm? Zippo. And it didn't. Turns out there were lots of efforts out there to digitize medical records, and the, his clients ended up going with somebody, somebody else. So why would I have thought that God would bless an endeavor that included the violation of pretty much everything God had said about how to handle money? Now, part of me was bummed because there were consequences. Had to start over to put money in the bank again, save up for emergencies, save up for old age, replacing a car, that kind of stuff. But part of me at this point through the years has been very thankful because if that thing had produced mucho dinero, what would I have learned? Yeah, I'd have learned that that's the way to do things. And I'd have done it again. I've been right back in the mix looking for some big score as I ignored God and the counsel of my wife and the stakes would have gone up, and the consequences would have been far greater. Instead, I got seized with what God said about how to handle money, and we have tried to live that way ever since. And I got to tell you, far better results, far better returns, because God promises to give us what we need. Not what we always want, but everything that we need when we are committed to following him in obedience on how he says to do things. My guess is if you're a Christian here today, You may have some stories like mine and King David's, where you knew what you were doing was wrong and God simply did not let you get away with it. And the consequences happened. God, who is your father, will act for the good of his kids when you scorn him, which includes scorning his word. Here's the question. Did you let him grow you or did you get bitter? So God's going to work on the little irritating things in us that need to be worked out of our lives that don't necessarily reflect Jesus Christ. but They may be absolute sin, but they're just irksome, irritating things. And he will discipline us for our own good when we are willfully disobedient. Bummer, that irks, and ouch, that hurts. And then there's a the last one. Hey, hey, that works. And the third area Peter Parker helps us see in terms of growing up is under the banner of, hey, that works. Peter returns to school, Crushed that he's uh, not going to be an Avenger, settles into normal life. Sad that his own flaws have kind of cost him so dearly, he invites Liz, the girl he's got a crush on, to the home- homecoming dance. And when he rings the doorbell to pick her up for the dance, who answers? Yeah, the vulture, <laughs> Michael Keaton. He's her dad, for Pete's sakes. He uh, drives the couple to the dance, and as the conversation in the car ensues, the vulture begins to discern that Peter is actually Spider-Man. So when they get the dance, he sends the daughter off. He says, I wanna have a little dad talk with, with, with Peter. And it's not a dad talk, it's a vulture talk. He says, here's the deal. I know who you are. You ever, ever interfere with my work again, I will kill you and everyone that you love. So this time the battle has come to Peter. He's not gone looking for it and he has no choice but to react. And he makes all the right moves. He sends word to Stark. He has his friend Ned put a tracker on his phone so everyone will know where he is. And the next 12 minutes or so in the movie, there's this incredible epic battle where Peter at one point looks completely defeated, but he summons strength he didn't even know he had from someplace. He not only ends up defeating the vulture, but actually saves the vulture's life. He comes into his own by humbling himself, by being obedient, by doing things under the authority of Stark, and then there's this clip of a meeting with Stark afterwards. We see a more mature Peter Parker, don't we? A wiser Peter. Peter has figured out he's got some room to grow, that he doesn't know everything yet, that benefits from following some instruction or good, some guidelines are good, that all the stuff he fought at first... But now he's beginning to see the wisdom of it, and his future is once again headed to full avengership. (laughs) For you and me as Christians, the idea of knowing what God says and obeying it is called faith. Faith is nothing more than believing what God says is true and then living as if it's true. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. When we hear what God says and live as if it's true, we're going to discover what Peter discovered here. Hey, that works. God's going to be all in with you on this. He will start working those acts of obedience for your good. God has implanted his Holy Spirit in you at salvation. He even says, look, when you know what I say because you are hearing me, when you are going where I'm telling you to go and you're doing what I want you to do in obedience, you don't even have to worry about what you're going to say if somebody asks you a question about what's going on with you and spiritual stuff. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will tell you in those moments exactly what to say. You will feel a power you didn't even know you had, like Spider-Man experienced, rising up to respond as God would have you respond. You know what you're going to do? You're going to like that. You're going to like that. And it's going to make you want to try something else that you hear from God's Word, that you decide to lean into with obedience. And when you do, you're going to end up saying, hey, that, that works too. That feels really good too. And this process over and over and over again will draw you closer and closer to God. And you'll get to know him more and more. And you will get to trust him more and more. And you'll begin to look and be more and more like Christ. How about our Bible example? How about Noah? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Read the account for yourself over in Genesis. What did Noah believe by faith? It wasn't, it wasn't that much about a big flood. God said, for the first time in the history of humankind, it's going to rain. Because at that point in time in history, the water had come up as a dew and watered the land. It had never rained before. But God said, it's going to rain. I know you've never seen it. But I'm going to use this to basically, you know, save mankind. God's on this dramatic change, is coming, it's going to rain, 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 lots, lots of rain. And Noah chose to believe in something he had never seen before, because God said it. Hebrews 11 is full of people who believed something unbelievable that God said, and they would all say right now, hey, that works. You and I should have stories of stepping out in faith, Believing what God says in his word that maybe everyone else around you thinks is loony, thinks is crazy, but you act on it. And then you have God throw his weight into your life in ways that you never imagined. Things that will leave you amazed. And you're going to say, hey, as amazing as this is, as crazy as it sounds, that actually works. It will feed your desire for more and more of God's activity in your life. And that will make you more and more like Christ.